in terms of talking about grief and agony as we remember those that have gave their lives for this country. And I know that last week's message can be somewhat of a downer as you're talking about those types of topics. Hopefully you were able to reflect on some of those things in your life and you were able to uh, come to a point where you can process through some stuff. Uh, this week kind of carries over a little bit with the same types of themes, with the same types of topics as we look at the betrayal and the denial that happens um, in terms of what Jesus is going to go through, in terms of facing these things from his disciples, from those who are close to him. So we're going to be able to see some more confusing things. We're going to see some more sad things. We're going to see some more things that we can lean into that might be difficult. But I want us to understand that as we lean in, our strength and our hope is found in the Lord, just like as we left last week. And we'll hopefully um, find that same type of uh, thing by the time that we get to the end of the passages today. But you know, as I went through this passage, as I do with a lot of them, I tried to put myself in the shoes of the disciples or those that are involved. And I would wonder, okay, would I make the same decisions, would I make the same choices that they're making? And many times, uh, I just, I'm left shaking my head with a smirk, realizing things don't really change too much. People don't change that often, and a lot of times we can fall in the same patterns and the same traps. So we want to talk a little bit about that this morning as well. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke 22, and we're going to be reading from verses 47 through 62 today. So verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temples and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness." Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are... You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, 
how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Father, as we go to your word today, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to hear your truths. Help us to gain an understanding um, of our faith and how we are following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so within this passage, we find a lot of moving parts. Um, it is kind of straightforward. It is kind of easy to understand. But there's some confusing things within that I want to dive into. You know, the section heading here, it's there to help us understand some movement within the text. But we want to recall back where the scene is, where the context is from our last passage. Um, understanding that Jesus, he's was just praying to the Father deeply. Uh, he comes and he wakes up the disciples. And as he is talking, this crowd comes around to meet them. And he is being approached by Judas. Now, if you put yourself in, in this scene, you got to think about, you know, the disciples may have been asleep for like an hour, maybe just getting to that REM phase. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night like that? Maybe by little kids? How alert and prepared are you in that phase? You know, you're probably still a little groggy. You're trying to figure out what's going on, and all of a sudden you see this crowd that's gathering around. Immediately, adrenaline would start to be rushing in your body as you're trying to figure out what's going on. Physically, you've got energy in your muscles, but mentally, it's still, maybe you're still half asleep. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. And as Judas draws near to give him a kiss, maybe the disciples don't even notice this. You know, this kiss, it's, it would be a sign of, well, from Judas, it's the sign to the guards of who they're going to arrest. But a kiss in this culture, in this age, is how you would greet someone. You look at Paul. He tells uh, the churches in Rome, the churches in Galatia, in, in Corinth, to greet each other with a holy kiss. It's common for a disciple to come up to a rabbi to give them a kiss. So they probably don't think anything of it. They're probably focused on this mob that is surrounding them, trying to figure out what's going on, confused with what's going on. But then you hear this statement from Jesus about Judas. Then things would begin to click a little bit. I think shock would have come into the disciples' minds here, where their focus turns on him. And then more confusion. Back to, well, what is going on here? Why is this happening? You know, I think that when we're looking at the disciples... As we look back at their capabilities to understand what's going on, we would probably define them as being pretty dense when it comes to these things, a little slow on the uptake. And of course, we can look back on it and say these types of things. You know, it's once Jesus is pointing it out, they realize what Judas's real intentions are. Again, it's hard to understand or believe that they could have missed something like this. We think of Peter's reaction a little bit later with the denial, not understanding what's going on and still going through it. But, you know, I relate to this type of mentality quite well. I understand it with my kids and having conversations with them. I understand it in my own life because, well, I'm a guy. Selective hearing. I think that's the nice way or the politically correct way to say I know that you've told me 12 times, but I wasn't really listening, so of course I'm acting shocked as this is the first time I'm hearing this type of reaction. 
But it's always frustrating with your kids and your spouse because what's the common response? But you never told me this. You know, when we think about this happening in life, it happens quite more than we like to admit. I mean, just think about when you're reading the Bible. You know, ignorance can be fun at times. It can be a fun excuse. But just look at reading the Bible. How long have you been a Christian? How many times have you read over the Bible, but yet you'll still come across something and say, I didn't know that was in there? You know, God's revelation is always surprising and wonderful, it seems. And it's a good thing. But, you know, when we see what happens here, Jesus says that this is a betrayal. And I think for the most part, we can understand this term. We have the general meaning of, you know, being delivered into the hands of an enemy uh, through deceitful ways, through treacherous ways, uh, being unfaithful to one another in terms of a spouse or a family member betraying you, failing somebody, deceiving somebody. So I think that we can see how Judas fits this bill pretty well. It's obvious as Jesus calls him out for it. And betrayal is a hard thing because it breaks the trust that you have with that other person. And if once you've been betrayed, then you begin to build up layers to protect yourself from being hurt deeply that way again. And it's layers that are then towards other people that have not betrayed you. you know? So you think about those types of deep hurts and the types of protections that we have in our life. Being betrayed by somebody that is close to you is difficult. It makes it hard to trust again, even with forgiveness. Betrayal sets these roots of deep bitterness in our hearts, a stronghold that the enemy can grab hold of to use against us in the future. And here we see Judas as one of the 12 betraying Jesus. And to some extent, we also see the other disciples betray him as well as they will abandon him. You know, it's not too difficult to understand the grief, the agony that Jesus would be experiencing by being betrayed by those that profess to have a close relationship with you, that profess to believe in you, that want to follow you, that have affection for you. But, you know, when we think of betrayal, sometimes we think of the big ways, but there's a lot of other ways in which we can betray someone. Because what I see happening next is a betrayal by the disciples themselves, the other disciples, the actions that they take beyond just abandoning Jesus to where they are betraying what they've been taught and what they've been told, where they're not understanding the message that Jesus is giving. I mean, they become pretty keen to what's going to be happening here after Jesus calls out Judas. And then we see this question of the sword, but it's not really a question, is it? It's just an announcement of what they're going to do next. Again, betraying the intentions of Jesus. John names Peter as the one who strikes off Malchus's ear. Peter, who had just said, I'm going to go to prison with you. I'm going to die with you. Well, he's, he's showing his mettle that he is going to fight for Jesus that he's ready to go to prison or whatever it might be. He is passionate for his king. But he, too, betrays Jesus. He betrays Jesus' intentions to follow the will of God by thinking he knows the better way of what Jesus needs to do. Jesus had just wrestled with prayer for the, all evening. 
He had resolved himself to follow the will of God while Peter was asleep. Jesus knew what he needed to do. All of these disciples had just been taught what the new covenant was and how it was going to be made with Jesus' blood. They had heard multiple times that Jesus was going to die, that he was going to be handed over to his enemies, that he was going to be beaten. But here is Peter still holding on to his thoughts and beliefs about the Messiah, ready to protect his king. And with both of these instances, with Judas, with the rest of the disciples, what we see, uh, what we see here is behind it all is this idea that they're following Christ for their own gain whatever it might be. Now, the disciples, for sure, have had good intentions as they follow Jesus. They recognize him as the Christ. They go as they are called to go, or they are sent to go. But remember, they had a, a misunderstanding of what the term Messiah means. He was going to be their king. He was going to free them from the oppression, which he does, but just not in the way that they were expecting. And then Jesus says, no more of this. Now, I can only imagine the sternest of voices as Jesus says this in order to break through the hardness of heart that they have in terms of their understandings of the Messiah, something that would stop them in their tracks. And I wonder what would have been going through the minds of the disciples as they hear this. Again, adrenaline still coursing through their bodies as they see this mob. They're ready to defend Jesus. Perhaps they have a series of thoughts Similar to this. No more of this. What do you mean no more of this? Are you giving up, Jesus? Are, I mean, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go for prison for you just to give you a chance to get away. Because you are the king. You're the one that's going to, to lead us to victory. Are you just going to let them take you? Jesus, are you betraying us? An interesting thought. I don't think it's too far off base because I believe that there was probably a sense of betrayal in their own hearts and minds when they're relying on their own ways, when they're relying on their own paths. I'm not foolish enough to say that I haven't had similar thoughts in my life. Where are you, God? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you helping me? This isn't how things are supposed to go. Where we're left with this feeling that God has abandoned us, that he has forsaken us, that he doesn't care about us, maybe that he has betrayed us. Where for a time then the enemy can run with that root, that bitterness, those protections, to where now we're protecting ourselves from God getting too close to us. The enemy loves to drive a wedge between us and the truth, between our understanding of the word of God, where we know that he loves us, where it says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That is the true word of God, and that is what we need to cling to when those attacks, when those temptations come. Even if our feelings tell us one thing, that God has left us, that he has betrayed us, that he's not really there for us. Because God does not do that. He does not betray us, despite what our feelings might say. Again, many times, we're no different than the Pharisees or the disciples, in that we want Jesus to accommodate us. 
accommodate our selfish desires, our intentions. God's here for me. Very simply, he is God, you are not. And we need to remember that. There are times, perhaps we need more times like this, where God will tell us enough of this. Times where we need to grow up in the faith and understand that we need to put off the old things, our old ways of understanding and going our own way. Enough of living our way, and instead we need to be living in God's way, listening to his word, being in prayer so that we can understand his will and his plans, practicing that active listening rather than that selective hearing. And speaking of hearing, something wonderful then happens where Jesus heals an ear. I love this verse. I've always been fascinated with it. It's so simple. I see this kind of as like a last-ditch type of effort, like, all right, enough of this. Let me just heal this person's ear here, and then we'll get on with the business. Like, does that have no effect on the people that are there? Is it such a common thing to see somebody's being healed that a piece of their body has fallen off and then just, mad, not magically, but, you know, miraculously attached back on? It's just, it's so amazing to me, and yet... You know, how great is our God, but how hard are people's hearts? It really puts it into focus. He now addresses another betrayer, a betrayer in Israel. You know, the themes carry over from the prophets of old and how they have abandoned God. The leaders of the people are rejecting God's own son here, betraying the covenant. And they are fulfilling the parables that Jesus talked about in terms of the heir to the vineyard. These leaders are going to move forward with their plans to kill Jesus. And of course, this is done in the secret of night, which is against the law to begin with, but they come prepared with clubs, with swords. They come ready for a fight. But Jesus tells them, it would have been easier for you to just arrest me in the middle of the day because I'm not going to fight back against this because this is the will of the Father. But instead, they come in the darkness of night. And I think that this underscores the enemy's movements here. I think it underscores this picture of darkness, an imagery that would continue on until Jesus dies on the cross and darkness covers the earth for a period of time. And it is going to be a period of time. As Jesus says, an hour here. This shows that there's going to be a limited time where Satan will do his best his best attempt to strike at the heel of Jesus. But Jesus is going to strike and, bruise, and crush his head. This is the hour and the power of darkness. And this is a limited time where it might be a triumph or a seeming triumph for our great adversary. But of course, it is limited. It shows who the eventual winner will be. And I think that Jesus is still expressing here to, for the people that are surrounding him to continue to hope, to continue to have trust in what he has said in God's plan, in God's will through this matter. Trust that he knows what he is doing and that God will redeem his people from their oppressor. The plans of God are greater than the plans of man, a principle that holds true even through today. But in the moment 
of going through those types of hard times, it is difficult to trust. We acknowledge that. We understand that. I think that's why the importance of last week's message in terms of being in prayer constantly is so important for our daily lives. Understanding that we have to be in prayer to know what the will of God is and understand um, how Jesus is resolved to that, how he is strengthened by the Father to stand and take those steps forward to do what Christ, or to do what the Father has asked him to do. We then move into this next section where Jesus is seized and led away and brought to the high priest's house. Now, in the next message that I give, we'll go over the trials. But again, the importance of this being done at night is, is shown here. It shows the deceitful nature behind all of this. And now we move from the issues of betrayal to that of denial. And when we're trying to understand denial, we want to understand we're not just talking about the river in Egypt, but we want to focus on how that it is a rejection, how it is um, negating what's being said, negating the truth. You know, and denial, oftentimes it's viewed in a negative sense. Um, but I also want to shed a little bit of positivity on it too in terms of the ideas of self-denial, where we are denying ourselves to put on Christ's righteousness. Um, you know, understanding his desires and his commands. I want us to hold that a little bit in our minds as we um, move closer to the ending today. But with Jesus' last words to his disciples, when he, uh, and you know, it's kind of directed at the mob as well, when he says, no more of this, I th it brought up an interesting thought to my mind. And that is, what is the right place of the disciples in that moment? What should they have done? Where should they be? And then we look at, at what happens. You know, most of them flee for their own lives, for their safety. They hide behind locked doors. John will be at the cross. Maybe he's under a, a cloak or a hood so that he's not recognized. And we see that Peter here follows behind the group as they take Jesus to the high priest. And, you know, the joke goes, a good friend is one that will bail you out of jail when you get in trouble. But a great friend, they'd be in the cell right next to you. You know, so where would the right place of Peter be? Should he have followed Jesus to this point? Should he have dispersed as well? Should he be imprisoned? ready to die with Jesus as he said that he was. You know, obviously we know the outcome, so it's kind of cheating on our part. But many in times in life, we are left searching for the will of God, wondering what we need to do. And we're, we find ourselves in similar situations as Peter and the disciples. When it comes to in the moment, how do we know what the next steps of, that God wants us to do are? where maybe we're responding with adrenaline in the moment because we are faced with a deadline and we have to make a decision now. Or maybe we're using selective hearing and we're not listening to the wisdom that has been told to us 12 times already because it's not what we want to hear. But we're wanting God to bless our plans instead. Or maybe we hear people just continue to say, trust in Jesus. A true statement for sure. But what does this mean for a person whose life is a mess and there's no easy answers? What is the next practical step? Because it's a loaded phrase that can mean a thousand different things. 
So how are we equipping one another? How are we encouraging one another to follow the Lord, to trust in the Lord, but to do it biblically? Again, putting yourselves in the shoes of Peter. What would you honestly have done? As I said, obviously we know the end results. We know that this is a fulfillment of what Jesus had predicted earlier in the night, that Peter would deny Jesus three times. I think Peter still doesn't believe this is going to happen. I think he's, it's probably the furthest thing from his mind at this time. He's probably just trying to stay as close to the Lord as he can. He's still confused. He's still wondering what, what's going on. And it kind of blindsides him where he's just kind of aimlessly wondering about what to do next. We see him approached by a servant girl and two men who call Peter out, the last one identifying him as a Galilean. Now, this would have been a stereotype for sure. It's probably he is identified by his accent through his speech. His words would be a little different. It would be similar to uh, recognizing that somebody is from the south because they have a draw to their, to their accent. You know, uh, Matthew 26, 73, the man identifies him as through his accent, saying that he has to be one of them. Matthew and Mark both have oaths attached with Peter's denial, where he is swearing that he does not know this Jesus. He's denying this connection. Again, perhaps he is denying Jesus so that he can stay close to him and stay with what's going on. Sometimes we, I like to look at the good side of things and try to give the person the benefit of the doubt. But regardless, when we think of what happens here, if earlier in the night, and if again, if you were in Peter's shoes, and if earlier in the night you said that you would be ready to die and go to prison for someone, would you then deny that person? Unless we're really faced with those situations, again, it's easy to sit here in our comfortable chairs without a gun to our head. And I definitely encourage you to continue to pray to make that resolve in your hearts and minds now in case that situation ever does happen. I mean, you, you look at what's happening to Jews right now across this country just for being Jews, just because they have a yarmulke on. They're being beaten. They're being attacked. If that changes to Christians are you ready to be beaten for Christ are you ready to go to prison for Christ are you ready to die for Christ yeah in the moment I mean and, and what's happening now in, in our streets isn't even in the cover of darkness it's in broad daylight but in the moments when our faith truly matters what will we say Then we have one of the most impactful verses of this section, I think. After the rooster crows, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Now this look, again, we can imagine the meaning behind this action, behind this term. I had mentioned something similar back in Luke 20, verse 17, when Jesus turned and looked at the Pharisees. And I describe that as a look that could see right through a person to their intentions, to their heart. 
And this is interesting for several reasons, because in both of those instances, it's the same Greek term, but it's not the normal term for to look. It has added meaning. Also, in this is the same term that is used in John 1, 42, where it says, He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we have this, these terms kind of as bookends here in Peter's journey with the Lord at the beginning and now here at the betrayal. But again, as I said, this, this term means something more than just looking at similar to when you would say, I love my wife and I love cheeseburgers. The love is different, and I'll leave that for an argument later of what you love more. But, you know, when we look at this term look, um, it is a term that is full of compassion, interest, love, concern. Jesus has all of those things. You know, and you can, you can put yourself in that situation, understanding what has just happened with Peter, and then trying to maybe avoid eye contact, but the eyes meet and they're locked, and you see that look of Jesus, and you just know. You know your ugliness. You know that you have betrayed, that you have denied, that you have failed your master. He understands the truth of Jesus' words. The fact that he doubted Jesus, that he trusted in his own strength, his own truth to follow Jesus instead of what God has taught, instead of what Jesus has taught him. Trusting in what Jesus was doing and what he was saying. So he denies Jesus in a way to kind of keep up control of the situation in his own life. How many parallels can we make to our own lives? When we're fighting for control and we're doing things that maybe we know aren't the right way to do things. I respond in anger because anger gives me this illusion of control. But I know the Bible tells me I'm not supposed to. You know, when we think of the different ways and the different parallels of how, how Christianity in our life can become platitudes can become memory verses. But it's all up here. It's not actually lived out. You know, when we think of the different ways that we betray or deny Christ in our life, a lot of times it's with how we act or how we respond. It could be, definitely be with our words. We want to realize our own failings as well. Within the context of Jesus' teachings on faithfulness, Peter is realizing his own unfaithfulness to his master. He understands this as he sees the look of Jesus, and he leaves the courtyard and weeps bitterly. And you've got to think, is there any other reaction that would be appropriate? When we come to the, the point of realizing that we have failed Christ in our life, when we truly see his eyes and we're convicted by the spirit of the sin in our life, is there any other response other than woe is me of unclean lips, weeping bitterly, remorse? So we know, we understand with this look, 
the feelings that are associated, the emotion that is connected there. We can see that. But what we have to dig a little bit deeper to find it here is within this look, within the understanding of that Greek term, it is not a term of condemnation, of disappointment, of anger, but one of love, care, concern. Jesus knows that every one of his disciples have fallen short of the glory of God. He knows that he is going to the cross to drink this cup of wrath for their sakes, for all of our sakes. Again, I find the, the similarities between parenting here to where when our child messes up or we find disappointment, you can feel that disappointment, you can be angry, you can be upset with their decision, but you still have a love that is greater than that anger or disappointment for them. To concern of, oh, you made that decision. Why'd you make that decision? Now you have to face this punishment or you have to face this consequence. I'd hate for you to have to face this. You know, it's, it's hard to describe that balance between uh, what happens when we are disciplining our children. And you know, I found some beauty within Peter's denial here in that he does repent. You know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a breaking point, so to speak, for him in his life. And he goes on then to encourage the brothers and they go and they spread the gospel message. They go lovingly to minister to all especially to those in the synagogue as well. Through the next few chapters, um, what we're going to talk about is this thought that I have playing out where, as I said before, Israel has betrayed the king by rejecting his son. Um, Peter's also going to point out that they have denied their king as well in terms of, and Peter will give them opportunities to repent. So, as we close today, I want to turn over to Acts chapter 3. If you want to turn over there with me. And we'll read a little bit about this here. So Acts chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You know, so he's setting up here um, a convicting moment for the Israelites to come face to face with. Recognize that you have denied the one that God has sent to be your Messiah. Recognize that you have rejected him. It is by faith in, in Jesus and it is by God's power that this man can walk before you. And then he, he sets that up and then he turns to a message of repentance now in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance 
as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You know, it's a, a wonderful message that Peter gives of hope stemming from denial, stemming from rejecting, denying what God has set in, plan, in plans. And there's times in our lives where we have betrayed the king, where we have tried to deceive him, tried to think that we're going to live our own ways opposite of his will. There are times that we have denied the king in our lives, where we have denied that he is sovereign over us as we go our own way. And like Peter, we too need to passionately fight for our Lord, but not to the point that we're missing his will and truth. We need to repent from the ways where we are selfishly trying to get our own gain from Jesus, betraying what he has called us to be in terms of his ambassadors, ones who are sent. Betraying by just trying to live a comfortable life here on this earth. We are ministers for God and his kingdom, not our own. We, we need to acknowledge and repent of those times in our life where we've betrayed and denied Jesus to be the Lord and master of our life. Peter calls the Jewish people to do this. Paul calls the Gentiles to do this. Pastors today call on churches all over the world to do this where we need to be in prayer, aligning ourselves to his will and purposes in order to serve our great God. To reflect on this passage a little bit this week, I want you to ask yourselves this question. At what point will we have ears to hear Jesus say no more of this? A phrase that will break the hardness of our hearts so that we can show full submission to Christ in our lives. Because... It is his kingdom that we pray for. We need to weep bitterly at times in our life, recognizing the sin and repenting from that because it is his kingdom come and his will be done. Let's pray. Father, as we continue through our understanding of the, this Passion Week and we go through some of these agonizing times, and we reflect on what you went through for our sakes. Lord, I know that our heart understands betrayal and denial. We experience this a lot in our lives, and we can empathize with that. And Lord, you have called us to trust in you. And trust comes hard as people are betrayed.
the Lord, you are steady. You are the rock. You are the one who is above everything. Lord, we say that we trust in you in all things. And I pray that that would be more than words in our lives. Convict us in our hearts and minds of the times that we are betraying and denying you as we live each and every day. Help us to continue to grow in sanctification, to be fully submitted to you. Continue to highlight different areas where we might be failing. Help us to pray in those moments for strength to fight against those temptations to fully trust in your word when those things happen. So that as we're made uh, as image bearers for you, Lord, that our light would shine brighter to this world that is in darkness. Lord, I pray for this body. I pray that you would help us to experience your peace and rest today. And that we, we truly find that rest and not just escaping. Help us to rest in the truth and the beauty of your word. That you are the king. That you are the Lord. And that you are coming again. Lord, if that is today, allow us to rejoice. If it is not today, allow us to still rejoice because you've given us more opportunities to share your word. Lord, allow your joy to be present in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.